This is a Culture Inject production. So welcome back to The Nevers Podcast, a fan cast for Joss Whedon's HBO series The Nevers. On today's show, we'll be discussing episode four of The Nevers titled Undertaking. I won't be reviewing this episode alone. Joining me to dissect this episode today is my co-host, Chirag. So hello. <laughs> hello. So a bit about The Nevers Podcast. If you'd like to follow us online, visit our website at hbothenevers.com. On Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at HBO The Nevers and at HBO The Nevers Podcast without an A. Uh, you can stream The Nevers Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, YouTube, and anywhere else that you can stream podcasts. Comments, questions, and interview requests, please send them to theneverspodcast at gmail.com. And please also rate and review our podcasts and help us reach more listeners. So for a little bit of housekeeping, we were fortunate to receive episodes one through four of The Nevers from HBO, which allowed us to see into the future and record our review for those episodes ahead of time and have them ready to publish the day after the episode aired on television. But now we'll be watching the episodes with the rest of you as they air, which means that our reviews will be published on a new date we will keep you informed. Follow us on our social media accounts to stay updated. So a uh, synopsis of, we've got episode four, Undertaking, which aired May 2nd, 2021. So while Monday seeks justice, Amalia and her most trusted advisors make a list of potential enemies. Harriet, Primrose and the other orphans attempt to decipher a message. Later, Amalia exposes an unexpected threat. Got all the usual players. We're introducing Vinny Heaven as Nimble. Uh, it's written by Midori Shakar and directed by David Samel. Okay, so uh, what are your initial impressions? What What did you like about this? I really liked this episode. It was very different to the other episodes. A lot less action and a lot more information and kind of delving into what's actually going on, which I really enjoyed. Uh, so yeah, it was a lot more kind of drama and just kind of character based, lots smaller interactions. Yeah, it seems like everything's kind of coming together here and we're getting closer to what's actually going on. Uh, I also liked that it focused more on the other characters. So with Myrtle and Harriet and Primrose, you know, trying to figure out and decipher what Mary's song was, just kind of all of that in the orphanage, which was just a little bit different. So I liked that. <laughs> yeah, that was nice. Yeah, uh, I, I, well, first of all, I wanted to preface talking about anything with an apology for the last week's audio. I got a new, new mic, so hopefully this should be audible and not shatter <laughs> your eardrums with plosives. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I, I liked this episode too. Uh, I, I, I didn't like it as much as I liked the previous three. It was, it was, it was less narratively dense and complex as the last few were. Uh, we do go back into the territory of Amalia is not a good leader of the orphanage. Um, Lucy says that she doesn't really know what the orphans are going through because she never gets close to them. But it turns out Amalia kind of does know what the orphans are going through as we find out that she was left behind or orphaned 
by the magic UFO people. And um, speak, speaking of that, speaking of Amalia True, I mean, I feel it's more like Amalia False because I, I, I think I radically misinterpreted her character. I, <laughs> I thought, I thought when she said that she isn't from here, she was referring to Ireland or something. But I guess it turns out she was referring to another galaxy. I think I got, I got very attached to the mystery of it. The, the, the ineffable, unsolvable, the question. And now that the question is kind of being answered, it feels, it feels a little less profound, but a lot more sci-fi. Uh, and I, I wonder if this is another case of like with Firefly, for example, it was bringing science fiction into the Western. So this is kind of like bringing science fiction into the period piece. It'll be interesting to see a spaceship uh, in, in Victorian times. Okay, so you want to you wanna jump into discussing the start of this episode? Uh, yeah, so the episode opens with everyone except Amalia attending Mary's funeral. Purists interrupt the service and begin hassling the attendees, mostly the touched. Uh, while at the service, Detective Monday also inquires about Amalia's whereabouts because, you know, why isn't she there? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I was going to ask you a question, Laura. Do we know who the purists are, and, and do we know what exactly their agenda is? No, I would assume they're some kind of gathering who just don't like the touched. So I would imagine that in the future, Masson in particular will probably be able to use them to, like, you know, radicalize them and use them in part of his army as such to kind of. I don't know, just make the whole country not like like the touched. But um, I think when much with Hugo later says, you know, who who <laughs> who are the purists? He's like yeah, got no idea what he's they? talking about. So they're obviously a new a new kind of group that have come about. Um, I I guess that I guess that if they're the purists, then maybe the touched are the impure. Mm. Maybe it's like a Harry Potter mud blood kind of thing. I feel like it's going to be a lot of people, uh, much like the woman that they got from Lavinia's underground workings, who was like luring the people in, who just yeah sees them as that they're not they're not really people, they're abominations or whatever as such. I did want to mention I did want to mention before we before we leave that scene, the the intercutting between the pallbearers who are lowering the casket and the workers on the dock who were lowering the bomb crates. Mm. Uh, the only meaning that I could, like, when I was watching that, that I extracted from that was maybe it was trying to say that these bombs represent many caskets that are being lowered because, you know, bombs are designed for death. And in a sense, like, when Mary Brighton was a casualty of war, there will be many people who suffer the same fate as a result of the bombs. So maybe maybe that was a little anti-war subliminal commentary. Yeah, it was really nice how they did that, the duality of that scene. So we learn that Amalia's not there because she's, you know, at the pub in this uh, <laughs> barb rule, uh, which I guess is, you know, that's how she grieves, that's how she deals with a situation that she's not, you know, that was out of her hands and after, I don't know, having a failure, she's got to go and have a good have a good slap because, you know, that famous Amalia slap is probably my favourite thing about this show. In. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, let it out. It's it's kind of like a romanticised bar fight scene, the trouble caused by a reckless hero. 
which mm-hmm. we've seen like a hundred times, right? It's ar- it's archetypically masculine. So we usually see like a, a dude who gets into a bar fight. Like mm-hmm. I think uh, Star Trek, the 2009 one, starts yeah. with Kirk in a bar fight. But flipping it to a female kind of makes an old thing new. So it felt more fresh than it would have Definitely, otherwise. yeah. Uh, and then we, we learn, obviously, much later uh, during the alleyway scene with Bonfire that the fiddle player is one of the Beggar King's men. Yeah. So she wasn't just there for a bar fight. She was also there to get information. So, you know, she was she was working, but she was also kind of just letting all of her anger go, I think, at the same time. And then you've got the funny little line in the office when she's like, how much does a violin cost? <laughs> because she just wrecked one. <laughs> and then we see... Oh, the, I liked this scene as well. So Lord Masson goes to the factories where they've just kind of like had a little strike, right? And my takeaway from this scene was like, A, he's so like domineering and scary. You know, you think there's all these men and he enters the scene and they're just like silent and stood there, shook. They're like, you know, he is in charge. Um, He says to band together when you can stand alone, you know, why would someone do that? Which is a complete opposite of the touched, right? Because they're all coming together to be this this group where they can care about each other and essentially be stronger together. Whereas Masson's view is why would you do that when you could be your own person and stand alone? So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, hitting them where it hurts. Uh, it was very uh, Dickensian, that scene. Uh, like, he scrooged those guys. <laughs> but yeah, you hit, the, you hit the nail on the head. And um, it's like um, uh, Benjamin Franklin's cartoon, United We Stand, Divided We Fall basically the opposite of a union busting anthem and uh you know it kind of it goes back to the pilot where masson wanted to preserve the anglo-saxon term employed as opposed to the more romantic employee so that power doesn't have to contend with individual rights and nor does it have to deal with collective bargaining and moving on to the next scene we have Annie Bonfire questioning Horatio about Amalia's absence from the funeral and her seeming lack of leadership, and Amalia overhears them talking about her. So I think we covered this ground in the last episode that, you know, maybe Amalia isn't the best leader with all of her faults. Yeah, I mean, I think he covers that just because that might be her way of dealing with something or the way that she does it, you know, I you can't be perfect, right? And be like, for me at least, I still feel like she's a really strong lead, even though she's got all these faults. Yeah, because I think, on the other hand, you can have someone who's seemingly perfect, but you're always going to be thinking that there's something going on in the background, which is kind of, I guess, Lavinia's scene going on. You know, you think she's helping everybody, but really deep down, she's actually kind of, we suspect, really evil. So, um, yeah, it's funny how you can judge someone based on their actions or what they've done and that but they might not necessarily I don't necessarily think she's a super bad leader <laughs> she's just a bit just a bit dysfunctional but you know yeah no one's perfect <laughs> no one's perfect <laughs> in the same scene we learn that the papers are blaming malady for mary's death and um amalia has a vision of herself in lord masson's office and we see Later in that scene, Amalia to say to Penance, 
I was left here completely alone, with nothing but a mission I was never actually given. No orders, no objectives. They left here and fucked right off. Maybe they died, who cares? I'm here where a woman can be killed just for having a voice. So who do you think they are? Who left her? Who do you think? What do you think about that scene? Um, I think, I think for me the most important, well, the one that stands out for me in that scene is just before she starts saying that I was left here completely alone. She's talking about funerals and penance. Is like, oh, you, you know, I can imagine you've been to a lot. And Amalia says, none. We don't do that when I'm from. And originally, when I watched it, I thought she said, we don't do that where I'm from. But on rewatching it. Like <laughs> that little bit, I'm almost certain she says when. So now I'm like, we don't do that when I'm from. We don't have enough time and we don't have enough ground. Um, so yeah, that's my main question now because now I'm like, okay, not only do I think that she's like from some alien race, but is she from another time? Why would she say when? Yeah. We don't do that when I'm from. I didn't <laughs> notice that. I thought she said where I'm from. It could be yeah. that she's from the future. It's possible, it's possible. Someone said that, didn't they? One of the, the fan theories was that she's from the future or that the ship is sent from the future from penance, the future penance. And she goes on to say, you know, um, a woman could be killed just for having a voice, which will be the world's epitaph if I can't do something other than make it worse. So she's clearly still really upset that all she that she hasn't really helped yet, right? All she's kind of done is fumble her way through, get people killed, she wants to help, but again, she's been put here with a mission or not even a mission, and she has no idea really what she's meant to do. And then I I think sci-fi fantasy has always been a really good vehicle to investigate and explore concepts like misogyny, because for us as people who live on Earth and walk on the ground, sexism is so common and so woven into the fabric of our cultures that we don't even look twice, but like uh, to an alien or to someone out of this time, that shit would be wild. Yeah. Like today, when we hear about some of the crazy customs and traditions of our ancient ancestors, we have the same reaction. Like, what are you doing? Why are you terrorizing the other half of your own race? And and then I really liked the the line they ended it with, and uh, it'll be the world's fucking epitaph. I thought that was a cool little line. Um, yeah, an epitaph is um, so the last episode of Dollhouse season one and the last episode of Dollhouse season two are called epitaphs. So epitaph one and two. So that's like a little, <laughs> which is an engraving on a tombstone. Speaking of yeah. not having funerals. <laughs> so we get the first hint of suspicion from Amalia, who thinks that one of the touched are behind Mary's death. Um, and then we have the scene where Myrtle confides in Primrose that Mary's song was a message that she could understand. So you called it in the last episode. Yeah, it really hit me when yeah when the song's going and everybody's just like totally immersed and Myrtle standing there with this like look of shock on her face. Like, and that was me. Yeah, like she must understand it. So I got exactly what I wanted from this episode. I was like, I was like, oh great. Um, because to start with, there's like a lot that's happened already. And I'm thinking, where's Myrtle? Is someone going to speak? Like, surely Myrtle would have gone straight to like Amalia or someone, right? But no, she's like on her own, struggling, trying to figure out herself, kind of. Um, 
And when the only way she can kind of do that is with her drawings. Um, Primrose comes in and she's then really upset because she can't understand Myrtle and, you know, she wants to be a friend and they're, like, getting on really well, but it's got to be really difficult to not understand what someone is saying, right? So, but she she starts helping and, yeah, I'm, like, really excited because I'm thinking, we're going to find out, you know, they're going to go and hunt down some translators or whatever and, and we're going to find out. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I, I, I liked her drawing on the paper. It, it reminded me of Hush, that ep- that Buffy episode. You're trying to say something and nobody can understand you? Yeah, yeah, no one can hear. <laughs> it's also a little bit, I guess, from what we saw of Mary's song, was really kind of like airy and bright. And the drawings were a lot darker, which was a bit, is this something scary? We're going to find out. <laughs> so uh, then we have a new character named Effie Boyle from The Sentinel, who goes to the police headquarters to find out what the detective knows about Mary's shooting. She believes there's something larger at play, and Mundy says that it's one of the touched who kills Mary. Um, so what do you think? Uh, I like the idea of Lois Lane in Victorian <laughs> times. That would be something I'd very much like to watch. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting to see another body that is really invested in the touched. And she seems, you know, she wants to discover everything about them and not be biased. And I guess she keeps running into people that are like either or, you know the elites like are not really liking the touched the police are not really sure whether they're bad or good and like when you have someone like Mundy just saying you know I think one of the touched did it what why why are we just jumping to this conclusion you know um have you got any evidence it's like no why (laughs) but um yeah so it's nice to have another angle and see if that will continue and I wonder if she'll be the one to write the expose on Lavinia. Maybe it'll it'll be like a <laughs> like a like a like a Jacques kind of thing or something. Um. So then Mundy and his partner interview the purists who interrupted Mary's service. They disclose that a couple of guys in suits approached them at a purist meeting and gave them a card, one resembling Hugo Swans, and they suggested they call out the decent folk at the funeral. So yeah, straight away, obviously Mundy sees this card and obviously he's already got bad business with uh, Swan so he just leaps to this conclusion it must be him um yeah I think that was an interesting scene it was nice to see you know just the setup with him rolling up his sleeves and they're like yeah of course come on then let's go they're like and then they find out he's the ape and just totally back down like that's how scary um Frank Mundy was in his heyday I guess yeah he's a famous boxer we're discovering new layers to each of these characters every episode. It's good good to yeah. see. Yeah. Uh, so then we have Amalia, Penance, Lucy and the gang um, gathered to narrow down suspects responsible for Mary's killing. I like the bit, there's the bit where Lucy's kind of like on the landing on the balcony and you can kind of see she's looking over everybody running around, which obviously later we learn really is she just watching. She's scared, right? She's really worried because... She's going to get found out. But when you're seeing it for the first time, you don't see any of this. And that's what I like about little... Um, when Yeah, once you know and you can watch a show back and you see everything and you're like, ah. So there's a lot of these and I'll list them all at the end because I was, yeah, I really enjoyed this. But, um, yeah, and uh, Lucy is another case of, uh, like Lavinia, of a character being loudly virtuous but quietly duplicitous. Yeah, there's all, there's all the accounts. Um, 
yeah, I, like I say, I, I kind of pick up on them throughout. Um, I'll pick up on all the little Lucy telltale signs. <laughs> yeah, the rousing political speech against Lord Massam. Yeah, she's so into it, isn't she? And she obviously messes up. She talks about his hunting and his trophies. And Amalia's already seen it once in a little flash forward, but she obviously goes there later on. Uh, Mundy confronts Swan about uh, his involvement in Mary's death, but Hugo denies any involvement. So this scene was great. He just barges his way in, right? They're there playing chess or cheese, as we find out. <laughs> Um, which is funny because you think all these high ups and how much power they must have, right? And how much important work they should have to do. And here they all are at this men's club playing chess with cheese. That in itself is just like hard hitting facts about society. <laughs> What's more important than all these people dying and all the touch and it, like the war? Well, you know, cheese. Especially like the way he barges in, it 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 really makes you understand how how little he gives a fuck about all this now it's kind of like and he even says at the end i don't i don't care anymore that's i have that over you he he's he lost he lost all semblance of civility civil discourse is out the window uh i like seeing how like sincerely disheartened hugo is that frank mundy actually thought it was him because clearly they've had some connection and they've had some relations and for whatever, you know, they each think has gone on and how they want to look at their relationship or whatever, Hugo clearly cares about about Mundy and, yeah, you can see that he's really upset that he would think that he'd be capable of a murder and a murder against someone that was important to, to Frank Mundy. He says, uh, well, she was a rival, and Hugo says, you know, I think we both know she wasn't. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point. I think their relationship is really interesting, and the fact that uh, Frank Mundy really hates Hugo Swan is is kind of like um, a self-hatred, almost. He, He hates the aspect of himself that would love Hugo. And as we know, they had an intimate relationship. So they did presumably make love several times, the first of which he was drunk for and the rest of them for which he wasn't. So, uh, interesting relationship. Um, and then he warns Mundy about Amalia. So, you know, you've got all this thing, you know, he's saying, oh, it's you. And now Hugo's saying, well, maybe you should look at Amalia. And it's just this whole web of mess at the minute. We don't know who to blame. Lots and lots of people knew all the information and it could have been anyone kind of thing at this point. I didn't mention back when they were all talking, um, uh, Amalia and the others, about who it might be. There's another bit. So Amalia says that she's going to go see Masson and Lucy straight away is like, uh, are you sure? You know, are you <laughs> are you sure? Uh, which you would think is just because it's about her safety and whatever, she's worried about her. But we'll learn that it's not. So Harriet is enlisting the help of her fiancé to find translators that can help translate what Myrtle has learned about the song that Mary was singing. So again, this is exciting for me because they're going to find out, right? They're going to discover what the song was. And also, again, like I said at the very beginning, something that I like about this episode is that we're getting to see Harriet and Primrose and Myrtle 
with more of a presence. Um, we've kind of been more focused on the older people at the orphanage and obviously Amalia and Penance. So it's nice to see the younger ones kind of take lead on something and really like prove their worth as well. They earn um, their stripes. Yeah. So then we see Penance uh, visit Augustus to question him about Mary Shooter. And yeah, I really enjoyed that scene. <laughs> that just goes from one one extreme to the other. It's kind of like, first of all, he's got no idea. Well, he thinks she's talking about the party and what he did. So he apologizes. Yeah, it was, you know, I did something really bad. Well, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then you've got the whole little recorder under her dress, um, which like some of her inventions that are kind of prototypes fails. Yeah, and they end up uh, reconciling. Yeah, I just think they're so cute. Of course they're going to end up together. I was... The, the the quirky kids are always going to end up together. That's how it goes in these shows. <laughs> I was a little more invested in the Amalia Penance relationship. I was hoping that would be consummated and there would be a little something more romantic there. But I guess, I guess it's platonic now that we have Augustus making moves. Sailing Penance away. Yeah, I think that Amalia and Penance are more like just, you know, really best friends, yeah, and like sisters almost. They are just like as close as close can be. Um, you know, their love is their love is pure. They are the bestest of friends. They they're the kind of ones, um like I I don't mind the kind of like will they, won't they in T V shows, but I also really can't stand it when it's like really obvious and really kind of like like that's the end goal of the TV show is that this couple's going to end up together. I feel like you just end up being played along, right? So I quite like relationships where there's no question. You're not ever bothered if people are going to end up together or not. It's not like the main thing of the show, but it's nice that it's there. You know what I just realized? I just realized that the Penance Amalia relationship is frozen. <laughs> it's like Amalia, she's like she's like the icy, emotionally distant kind of queen of the castle and then you have the the little sister who's a little more jovial and, and their <laughs> love is pure um i like at the very end of their scene when you know she's just like would you think your sister did the murder then uh and he gives this first lot that like the first instinctual look is of course not that's absurd and then this second little glance of Ah, oh, maybe is that possible? That could definitely possibly be her. You know, for her own brother to give that look of, hang on a minute, could she have done this? Like, is very very worrying. And also, the first sentence that he says in their meeting um, is, uh, "Does Lavinia know you're here?" So he's already like, you know, he's so scared of her. Obviously, she's warned him about penance. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, very 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 clear. Um, and another little line that I enjoyed was, nobody is as barbaric as the world to do. You know, and he's in that, you know, so for somebody that is in that part of society to say that, I do think that this is, like you said, oh, we want them to end up together and that will happen. I think that that look at the end is, if Lavinia really is evil and he finds that out, I do think that he will leave her in a heartbeat and not really think about it. He will go to the, you know, the people at the orphanage and kind of, um, join their side and be with penance over his sister uh, no problem yeah I think that'll be interesting to see if that develops <laughs> so then after that scene we meet Nimble so Annie meets Nimble uh, who works for the Beggar King 
Uh, Nimble assures Annie that Mary's death was not at the hands of the Beggar King. Do you like our new character? Yeah, uh, Nimble is a, definitely an interesting character um, with with uh, very very smooth, very smooth and mm. uh, coxswain. There's a, there's a little bit of chemistry between Nimble and Annie. Yeah, and uh, apparently can create some kind of reflective shield to not only block fire attacks but also to uh, use as a stepladder mm-hmm. in space which is visually dynamic. It's cool to see. Yeah. And um, I feel like morally ambiguous, but not malevolent. So the fact that Nimble works for the Beggar King, I- I'm wondering what what their relationship is, because Nimble says, I don't work for, I work with the Beggar King. Yeah. Which presumably means that they don't have loyalty to the Beggar King. Yeah, much yeah, like I- Annie. I- I like- yeah, you know, much like Annie didn't have like a sense of loyalty for uh, with Malady, you know they're their own they're their own people working at the end of the day. But yeah, I liked Nimble. It was a nice little interaction, and I, I'm just finding myself trying to decipher all this talk now. You know, there's so much talk about all these people and everything that's going on in the background, and yeah, it only escalates through this episode to leave you with all these questions of like who's working with who and what's happening. <laughs> but um. Yeah, hopefully it will become clearer. Yeah, so many alliances, frayed alliances, and uh, uh, enemies, and plots, and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and what I was thinking of earlier when I was uh, referring to the Lois Lane journalist was like the Jacques thing, which I think is going to, uh, if I had to predict, I think that's going to be an upcoming plot point, kind of galvanizing the public against these figures. Yeah, but we'll see. We'll see if my my last prediction didn't come true. So I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, we see Amalia visit Lord Masson in the next scene, and he suggests that whoever is responsible uh, did it so those at the orphanage would lose hope. And he basically confesses without confessing, nor does he give up his source, who we later learn is is Lucy. Uh, so what did you think about that scene? Uh, I really enjoyed it. So when I when I watched it, my first thing was that what Masson was saying seems really genuine. He's just like straight up, and it, it seemed genuine, uh, uh, denying his part in the murder. And then they get into that whole role play, and he's so convincing. It's almost like that is the real him, and because he's in this role play, he can say exactly what has gone on, exactly what he's thinking, without actually confessing. So then you're like... Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, he's, again, the same as the scene at the beginning with the workers. He's so... He's the kind of guy, he's super scary, but never needs to raise his voice, never needs to really get angry, but it's just that, like, stone coldness of him. And, yeah, it's it's pretty scary. Yeah, yeah, he's, uh, he's very intimidating. Uh, he reiterates that he's at war with Touched, and uh, him representing the British Empire and the touched representing any kind of meaningful or radical change or transformation. And the, just the way he refers to the touched event, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, uh, but he, I think he refers to it as a, as a molestation of God's nature and rules, like using this language couched in anger and hatred and fear 
just like it's a, like it's vandalizing something beautiful like like graffitiing on a on an art piece and um but i don't think that i don't think he's responsible for mary brighton's death i think that would be a little on the nose my my prediction is that still lavinia is the one is the mastermind behind that crime yeah, I'm actually with you, and I was going to mention that at the end, because, like I say, when I watched it, I did think that he was genuinely convincing that he didn't do it. But in the role play, he's so convincing that he has that mindset, at least, right? For me, it's hard, because, so, like I said, so many people have this information, um, and one of the moments from the last episode, sorry, the second episode, Amalia tells Lavinia that they're at the park, so from then, I'm thinking, well, it must have been Lavinia, okay, because they knew that they were there. So then I'm, like, questioning, are all these people working together? We don't know, do we? We still don't know. We're in the dark. Like I said, this big old web of different gangs and, and factions that might all be working separately, we, or...? Yeah, we do know that someone tried to frame Hugo Swan with that card, and... Lavinia obviously would love to frame him because I think that's the cold war between them in the show but we also know that uh, Lord Masson wouldn't mind framing him from the conversation they had about his father and uh, that threat so it really could be anybody Uh, despite him denying it Amalia is convinced that Masson is the one who gave the order to have Mary killed so the gang decide to torch his ammunition warehouse to send him a message. After that scene, we see Malady at the precinct, threatening to kill the superintendent if they don't stop placing the blame on her for Mary's death. And then she uh, jumps out the window. Um, the detective, Frank Mundy, chases her and catches her. And the sound effects, I have to mention, when he's bashing her head against the wall, are like crazy. Those like ridiculously violent. I feel like they smashed a coconut or something and recorded that. There's definitely some brain damage after that. If, if there wasn't, wasn't some yeah, before. If there wasn't already. So I was about to yeah, say. I like, first of all, her when she's in the window. I like how she was almost kind to Mundy. She gave him this, like, insight of, like, things that Mary had said when she was with her. She says something on the lines of, like, Mary knew. Uh, she described him as, like, being sad, and she knew he was sad. Um, she didn't want to hurt him, essentially. Uh, which I guess for him, you know, I know he'd spoken with Mary already, but to know that she hadn't just said that to his face, but she said that to someone else, that's how she felt about him, is really nice. Um, Then you've got the craziness of of the petals and, you know, she was in the coffin or she was in the box, she says. That is, you know, to think that they're all there at this funeral and Malady was there too. Uh, then another great bit is Mundy jumping out the window and doing the, the famous Assassin's Creed fall onto the cart, but makes it obviously look real life painful as opposed to in Assassin's Creed <laughs> when it's totally fine and you can jump from buildings way high and not get harmed. So I don't know if that was their intention or they were like, well, we can't have him jump onto concrete. We're going to have to put something there. But um, yeah, I just thought Assassin's Creed and it made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, I like that it's like a little concise fight. Because so far we've seen kind of quite prolonged fights between her and Amalia. And this was, you know, you can tell he's angry. Like you say, he smashes her head against the wall with such anger and force. Um, But when another cop goes at her with a knife, he's like, no, you know, 
she needs justice. We're going to give her justice. This is what, what we do. So it's nice to see, like, in the first episode, he wants to do it the right way. So, yeah, so Amalia, Lucy and Annie go to Lord Masson's factory. As soon as they're in the factory, she's squirming, right? You can see it. You can see Lucy. She's not comfortable there. She wants to get the job done and get out because she knows that it's not right. Um, and Amalia is so sarcastically cool. You know, she breaks the box open. Well, no wonder we're not winning the war, you know, because <laughs> it's just rocks. And Lucy's still on the floor trying to, like, slime her way out of it and think of something to say. Or, oh, you know, maybe he's moved it and blah, blah, blah. Then she sees Amalia's face and is like, oh, I'm screwed. <laughs> no, she knows. Um, then you see, for me, it's, like, broken down into parts. So you see how upset Amalia is. And she gives her a little spiel about how heartbroken she is because Lucy was the first woman, okay? So the first woman that, you know was taken in someone strong enough that Amalia could depend on yeah not just someone that she saved and had to protect like everybody else at the orphanage this is someone strong enough that she doesn't necessarily have to worry and someone that can help her as well as she help them then you have Lucy telling us more about her losing her son and how obviously horrific that was and that Masson promised or at least told her that they would try and find a cure so she's thinking you know she could get some kind of normal life back and that's what she wants she even asked if it was Amalia that did this so yeah it's it's so crazy to see it's that thing of like are they a villain as such or you know everybody can be pushed to a certain place right everybody's yeah, got I those buttons I don't think she's a villain I think she sees her condition as an affliction, as as a curse, and how can she yeah. not after losing her child the way she did? And I just noticed, uh, I just had the, the revelation while you were talking there, that when Amalia was saying to Lucy that you were the first woman I could depend on instead of having to protect, it was almost like she was asking Lucy to be the mother figure mm. that Lucy just couldn't be after what happened to her own child and it also ties in thematically with Amalia feeling like an orphan herself feeling left behind by her people and then as far as the cure that Masson offered Lucy it reminds me of the cure in Astonishing X-Men uh, and I guess Rogue would kind of mirror Lucy with not being able to touch anyone and the kind of social isolation of that yeah I was gonna also um say about x-men because it is obviously yeah with the cure and everything because there are always going to be people and like we said a, a couple of episodes ago there are certain certain turns that you know you can hide in society and no one will know that that you have anything different with you but some people you know they can't hide amongst regular humans and they have really horrific things that have happened to them because of that and we don't know obviously what that will feel like I would imagine a lot of them, like like Lucy said, would want an easy way out if they could. Like, would they still band together with, with the touch if they had a way out? Probably. Probably a lot of them would. Um, and then, obviously, you have the whole fight. The fight was cool. It's nice to see her ability breaking everything up. Um, you're really worried when they're right close having the fist, fist fight because she's trying to block her arms. 
so that she can't touch her. And then she really gives Lucy a beating. <laughs> like, her face after that fight is no good. And she's stumbling away. But she returns for that brooch. So, again, you see that she's obviously cares about these people. Because that brooch penance made her. And it represents, obviously, her mother. Yeah, it's... Uh, obviously, Amalia lets her go. Could have just killed her right then and there. And then she says that, doesn't she, later on? She says that, um, you know, I would have killed her if it wasn't for that bloody pin that you made. Then you get this nice little sit down at the end. Obviously, Myrtle and and that have been translating the the song, so they 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 do eventually uh, come in and 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 talk about what that is. <laughs> yeah, did we? So it does also show we do see Malady in prison. Well, maybe she can uh, hang out with Lord Masson's daughter in that jail cell. <laughs> is that what you think? <laughs> I think so. Uh, after after the comment. I think that we're going to read later. Yeah, I was going to say, it we'll, feels dis- like a- we'll discuss it later, yeah. So, um, okay, so at the end of the episode, like I said, they're sitting having this kind of little chat that Penance and Amalia always end up just kind of chilling at the end of the night, resting on each other, um, being the best pals that they are. And Harriet and, and Myrtle and that come in. They say that it wasn't Mary singing, you know, they're not her words, but it was someone else talking through her, and she says what it was. So, you are not alone, Amalia, my lonely soldier, Immediately, Amalia is kind of breaking down, right? So this is hard-hitting stuff. Um, something about wearing stripes. I didn't leave you. I went inside the city. I was damaged, incomplete. I had to heal. Um, so I immediately start thinking about the um, the blue ball of light underground that Lavinia is experimenting on because we know that it wasn't lit up. And then recently, I thought maybe because of the song the ball kind of came back to light, but it could just be that it had to heal over, like you said, I think, had to um, heal over a period of time. Uh, Soon we will all be ready, but it's dark. There's a darkness. She said to everyone, all of us, uh, to gather and protect each other because of the dark. Find me, let them help those who will, but come below and find me. Come before the dark and we can save. And then obviously it was cut off because Mary was shot. So what are they trying to save? Who are they that they need to gather? Yeah, it's just kind of... And again, because she's so distraught and upset, you know that she knows where this is coming from. She knows who it is. Um, And there's the little comment. The main thing for me was Pennant says, um, that's right. Like, she knows Amalia's truth now. Um, After Amalia got shot, and Penance was laying in bed with her. Um, Amalia said, you know, I need to tell you about me. I need. To, there's a lot about me that I need to tell you. And she says, you know, not now. Let's just, let's just lay. Let's just be. So um, I can only assume that since then and now, they've had a heart to heart. And she's maybe told Penance more about her and where she's from. Also because when she mentions like that whole conversation... Um, from the start of this episode, you know, I'm not from here I'm, or, and all of that stuff. Penance never questions it. The same way Horatio never really questions when she says weird stuff like that. So I can only assume that, yeah, they know at least a certain degree of where she's from and who she is. Um, that's, yeah, that's what I took from, from the end there. Yeah, uh, they've got a lot more knowledge than I thought they'd have. In fact, it looks like uh, the characters know way more than the audience does. I-, I liked the idea, actually, 
of all the touched coming together and bonding from a place of not knowing like what mysterious forces they're dealing with but it looks like Amalia's kind of in on it i think she she has some inside information and who's who's to say who else has inside information and then the message to Amalia from the song by the way was very warm and affectionate uh dare i say motherly to kind of tie in that lucy conversation so so my question would be do you think amalia is alien altogether do you think she had a life with a bakery and a husband and it just didn't work out or like what drove her to that to jumping off that ledge that's my question I think I mentioned before when we discussed it, I wasn't sure whether um, this is her, like the original Amalia, or whether she did in fact die in the water and the the bit of light that went into it is like another being that took over her body and then that gives us the whole, this isn't my face and all of that kind of things. Because yeah, we don't really know anything about her past on Earth apart from, you know, this husband with an abuse thing um, and that she knows Malady and Horatio from, we presume, an insane asylum. But we still don't particularly know the time frame of all that and everything that went on. So, yeah, I think there's definite possibilities for what happened. Um, but even if she's from another planet or whatever, you know, if she's dumped here even when she was a kid or whatever, you know, like Superman, baby comes to Earth and lives a human life, She's unsure of what her mission is because of whatever reason and just decides to live a regular a regular human life or as regular as she can. And when she's having that conversation with Lucy and Lucy mentions how uh, just horrible her condition is and what repercussions it had for her son, uh, I, th- I think Amalia mentions this wasn't the way it was supposed to be. So I'm wondering if she... Maybe it was a concerted effort by whoever was piloting that spaceship to spread power to the people who don't have power in the seat of power, which is the United Kingdom in that time period. Um, And maybe it kind of went awry for some reason. But yeah, it definitely looks like whatever that glowing thing is, it's inside the city and so is the doctor, Dr. Edmund Haig, in his subterranean torture labyrinth which is where they presumably need to go. Like the whole episode, like you said, it had a different, it had a completely different feel to the other three episodes. It was far less action. It was more um, story and character based. And then you have this huge thing happen at the end and just the credits and you're just like, oh, it was a very, um, one of those things that leaves you, it's like a cliffhanger, but it's not like a major thing that's happening right there. But just yeah, I'm really, really can't wait for the the next the last two episodes in like the first half of the season. It's gonna be exciting, I think. Uh, so yeah, let's go to some letters from our listeners. So it's time to check in with our listeners and crack open the Nevers mailbox. If you have a question, comment, or theory that you'd like to share with us, tweet it to us at the Nevers Podcast without an A, or send us an email at theneverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll read it on an upcoming episode. So, friend of the pod, Thorius Unlimited on Twitter, uh, tweeted to us and said, I'm calling it Lavinia's the one who had Mary killed. It had to be someone with enough influence to get the Gatling gun arm guy released from jail, and Masson is too obvious. 
Yeah, I agree with you, Darius Unlimited. I think you're right. Yeah, I also think that it's probably um, Lavinia. I think that he, she had the information and it seemed too perfect that it wasn't her. And then she went to the funeral and, and sang. <laughs> okay, so we'll see about that. The The killer will be revealed. Here's <laughs> a letter from Ken Reem. He writes, Hello, I just have to comment on something I think is obvious, but you missed it entirely. On your review of the first episode... You went on for a bit about the symbolism of the little girl that fell down apparently dead when she was touched by the falling particles and the sudden simultaneous awakening of Amalia following her suicide attempt. I think you missed the boat by saying it was symbolic. Number one, there was there were no other instances shown or mentioned about the particles killing anyone. Number two, remember Amalia's line of it's not my face? And number three... Remember Amalia on the floor among the children hiding and shaking like a scared, overwhelmed little girl. My conclusion is Amalia's suicide attempt was successful. Her body is now occupied by the spirit, soul, or consciousness of the little girl who fell dead when they were both touched by the particles. This is kind of similar to your theory. Uh, thanks, Ken, for the, for the uh, letter. I think episode four proved both of us wrong. Uh, nevertheless, I would say that to your theory, the only question I would ask is, I don't think Amalia's behavior really strikes me as that of a child. She's, she's more of like a jaded detective from a film noir. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's an interesting idea. I think maybe you might be right in the sense that the suicide attempt was successful, but the subsequent possession of her was from the particle. Maybe maybe it was from, like you were saying, Laura, from some entity that possessed her body and is now living in it in a completely alien world. Yeah, and I'm also with you, I think, what we was mentioning at the start, that I think we did completely, we missed this in the last episode, right? That when they're, they're installing the telephone wires and they go down into the dungeon-looking area of his manor um, and there's something, we know there's something in one of those cells um, and my first thought at that moment was, ah, I wonder if his little girl didn't die, but she turned into some beast or monster, you know, and that's her turn. Um, and of course, someone of his stature would want to cover that up and they would say that she died and they would throw her in, into a cell, I guess, because, I mean, you're not going to want to kill her or get rid of her some other how because it's still your daughter, but you can't have, well, he doesn't A, want a touched you know, person as a daughter or as part of his family in his position. And especially if she's turned into some kind of beast, he, he definitely doesn't want that. So I think that's where I was going after after that episode. But yeah, I think we completely kind of um, missed that part last week. <laughs> yeah, and I know you, you haven't seen Game of Thrones, but it reminds me of um, the Stannis Baratheon thing where he was so ashamed of his daughter's condition that he put her in a dungeon and isolated her from everybody else. Um, anyways, an HBO parallel comparison. Um, so Marcelo Inostroza on Twitter uh, says, Do you think the tone of the show is going to change dramatically after the initial first six episodes, since Joss Whedon will no longer be there? Or do you think the team will press on in the show uh, and the show won't suffer in quality? Um, 
I mean, if the cast and the crew and the writers and everyone else, you know, it's the same cast and crew, I can't see it changing too dramatically. You know, the writers, everybody, if everybody else is still on board, I think they've got such a good thing. I think it would be really hard to, to ruin it. Yeah, I think um, I think they're going to introduce vampires. I don't know for sure, but that's what I heard. <laughs> just what I heard. We can always hope. I, I hope it's going to be just as good. So uh, an email from Jen. Hi, wonderful show and appreciate you taking our questions. I was wondering how the show decided which unique talent uh, each character had. They are so incredible to watch and experience. Thanks, Jen Caden. If I was to guess, I would think that they want the powers to sh- to be visually, emotionally, and lyrically diverse. Like, for example, Primrose is so visually interesting uh, because she's so tall. And then you have Penance, who kind of brings the steampunk mise-en-scene with all the, the, the motor cars and the cool electric things. Um, and then Lucy is obviously the heartbreaking, the rogue, can't-touch-anyone, isolated character. Uh, and then you have characters like Myrtle and Malady, who add the lyrical dynamism to it. So I think you did, I think it's just interesting to have a diverse array of powers that you can go places with story-wise and just as an audience that you want to see on the screen. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think the most important thing probably is 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 story. Like, I think when you're putting together uh, all of these characters, especially when it's, you know, action and it's sci-fi, a lot of time you need something to get from A to B. And if it's that person, you know, can do a particular thing, then that's going to lead you there. Um and as they keep introducing more and more characters and perhaps the other people in the orphanage, like the younger ones and that, might start getting more involved, it'll be interesting to see what turns they have and how they're going to help um, as the story goes on. So this last one's from Michael Buckhalter. Great job so far, guys. I like your format of discussion. Thank you, Michael. Uh, I never thought about Amalia being an alien. Here's my two cents. So I think the victim found in the sewers was put there by Amalia. They mentioned her... Uh, face not uh, being eaten by rats and Amalia says it's not my face to the beggar king I think she might have been dead when she was touched and now she has to stay alive by using skin somehow uh, I think it will be revealed that Amalia abused her husband and laments his death I think it's Masson's daughter in the dungeon and she's not really dead I think only the touch can do the mining on the part of the ship at the site I agree, sir, that the Nazi S Doctor is comically evil, but also comically American. I think Malady and Amalia will team up. I think the Beggar King is controlled by Masson. It may have been in a trailer. Finally, I think it's going to be fantastic when Primrose fights, because that's uh, what you do with the meekest characters, and especially what you do with characters that are giants. Uh, well spoken on the subject of allegations against Whedon, guys. My best wishes for your continued success. Feel free to any- edit any part of this, Michael. Uh, thank you. So, yeah, let's... Uh, so, the first one, yeah. So, the sewer victim was Amalia. I I don't think so, personally. <laughs> what do you think? I think, I think, Michael, you watched uh, Game of Thrones and another comparison with the faceless people using the faces. Uh, I don't think... I, I I wouldn't, I mean, that would be pretty cold of Amalia to do, <laughs> and I'm not sure if you can sustain uh, a show where the hero um, uh, steals faces, but you never know. 
uh, you never know. Yeah, you never know. It it could very well be true. So I like this one. I think I think it would be revealed that Amalia abused her husband and laments his death. So obviously, Mundy mentioned that it was an abusive relationship. I think he doesn't necessarily say which side, and I I think we even did it. We just assumed that it was the husband. I will say one thing to you, Michael. I I really appreciate you setting uh, all of these ideas because these ideas are something that I never would have thought of. Like my head, my head just wouldn't have gone there with the with the rat eating the face and Amalia using a skin somehow. And you know, I think that's the benefit of conversation. Like that's the, that's the fruits of dialogue. Is this ideological exchange kind of gives me an opportunity to think differently and hear different ideas. And uh, so I appreciate that at the very least. And then as far as Amalia possibly being the abusive one in the relationship i think that it, i think that holds some water uh, from what we've seen of her behavior uh, it can be reckless um she she clearly is uh, uh okay with starting bar fights quite liberally um smashing glasses in people's faces so uh i i i pity the fate of her poor husband or maybe maybe she didn't even have a husband and that story is a facade. And if it did, she didn't have any recollection of it. If the theory is true that she's being possessed by a, a different entity altogether. So uh, Michael agrees with us about what we just discussed about Masson's daughter. So it's not just us. Or <laughs> um, I think the only touch... Only the touch can do the mining. Oh, this one I really liked. I think only the touch can do the mining on the part of the ship at the site. So this is interesting. This gives reason. This would give reason to why Lavinia, if she is somewhere deep down good, right, and fighting for the touched cause and needs to get this big blue thing up and running and working for whatever reason, is it only people that have been touched and are full of this energy possibly that can get near it and work with it because then that would give her reason for doing what she's doing still doing it in a terrible way obviously but um yeah i found this really interesting and i hadn't thought about it hadn't thought about it yeah without that being true it would be a little needlessly cruel to vegetate all those people but I feel like you guys are maybe uh, I'm gonna accuse you, Laura. I feel like you're you're <laughs> you're, be, you're you're really holding on to a shred of goodness in Lavinia. I don't know about that. <laughs> I just I don't know. I feel like why why there's I think there's more to her. I do. I still think there's more to her. Yeah, I think she should be Malady's roommate. I think she should be down <laughs> there too. Oh. <laughs> uh, so um. Agrees that the Nazi-esque doctor is comically evil, but also comically American. Yeah, he's very over the top, isn't he? He's um he's definitely like a character, like the biggest character of um of this show. And yeah, we haven't seen that much of him yet, so I'm hoping that we'll see more of him and what's going on underground, like the next couple episodes. Yeah, all the other characters they have like shades of grey, and uh, he's just kind of. A cartoon. He's comically evil. Maybe, maybe they'll add some depth to him as we go forward. Maybe he'll become a little more compelling. That's to be seen. Uh, so I think Malady and Amalia will team up. I think this is highly likely. Um, obviously, they have shared experiences from the past. In, you know, she's in prison now, but 
it's likely that we're going to get to a point where something needs to be done and it can only be done with Amalia and Malady because they have some connection and some connection to the big blue thing or, you know, especially if they've been in prison now, you know, where are we going to go? I think that's that's the way it's going to go. I don't know. Is she beyond um, saving? If you put everything that's happened to her and down to like mental illness as such, is it fair to completely take her life away if it's possible to reform her instead? Well, she could ultimately play her role like a Gollum kind of character. Without without Gollum, the ring wouldn't have, you know, fallen into Mount Doom. So she might have an important role to play. And then going back to the conversation between Bonfire Annie and Dr. Horatio, is there really that much of a difference between Malady and Amalia? Maybe they are mirror reflections of each other, like like Batman and the Joker. Maybe there's kind of a, 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 a you know, we're not too different, you and I, kind of thing. Um, Michael also thinks that the Beggar King is controlled by Masson. Um, like I was saying, at the minute, it's like really hard to tell. Um, I didn't break into it too much with all the... I, I will, I think, at the end. I need to come back to everything that happened with Lucy in all the episodes that, that brings you back to why she... Um, how you can see uh, that she's working behind the scenes um, throughout the episodes. But it's, for one instance, um, at the party, Lucy sends her home early after Augie upsets her. And you think, oh, that's nice. You know, she's being motherly, she's being nice. But upon leaving uh, leaving and heading to home on her own, she gets kidnapped. Okay, so then I'm questioning, well, Lucy did that. But... And it was planned. But now if you if Lucy's working for Masson, but she was kidnapped and taken to Malady. So are, is everyone working together? Is Masson, Bidlow and Malady in some respect, are they all kind of like, like I said, part of this big web? It, like I'm still kind of confused who's working for who and who's in each other's pockets and that. I don't I don't think Lucy would do that to penance. The, the the way she sacrificed her escape by going back for the pin makes me kind of believe in her and, and it wouldn't really make sense that Lucy is working with Massa and, and it's Malady who gets the jump on penance. Who knows, you know, alliances shift, they're fluid. The Beggar King was aligned with Amalia and then their enemies and then they're okay again in episode four. Who really knows? But like, as far as the as as far as the Beggar King, I think it would be really interesting if he was working for Masson in terms of social commentary. If this criminal organization that's peddling opium and violence was being sponsored by the state, like by by England, it would kind of it would pay off the uh, Augustus's line. Uh, I think it was like a, I think it was the barbarity of the well-off, and um, there's a remarkable similarity between the scenes of the beggar king scolding his workers who were handling the opium, and Lord Masson scolding his dock workers who were handling the bombs. So Michael's last point is that this is going to be great when Primrose fights. I oh I don't know I don't fucking see her in a fight or she'd be in the fight where like. She'd accidentally end up in the middle of a fight and not really... Because I can't imagine her hurting anybody. Um, you know, she's just this young girl, um, very, very sweet. And I guess you're right, you know, sometimes Mika's characters 
can end up being kind of the most deadly and and the strongest but yeah I don't know I don't know if we'll see her in a fight I I hope not because even though she's giant and probably very very strong yeah she's still a child and I'd want to protect her and not ever let her get anywhere near a fight yeah and uh what's her name Lavinia uh, calls Primrose the tiger in in the first episode or the second the second episode she does yeah so people will clearly see her her stature as as a threat and they will see her as a as a weapon but just her character isn't isn't that so if she does fight i think it would be more to protect someone she cares about as opposed to cause damage yeah gentle giant <laughs> so uh what are your final thoughts the plot is going somewhere <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely uh, going somewhere <laughs> that's not a descriptive thing to say uh, uh there i i i i i like uh, it's an enjoyable show so far um i'm a little less enthused with this episode as i was with the opening two episodes that i thought were just you know out of the gate just blew my mind this one made it a little more conventional sci-fi it feels like it's it's now trotting a path that's been well trod, uh, but nevertheless, it's it's a it's it's a path that I would want to walk. You know, it's a, it's 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 an enjoyable show. It's got some sci-fi elements that are becoming more visible, and uh, the relationships are really the thing that that'll probably keep me coming back. I want to see what happens between these characters, the will they, won't they. The relationship, the the friendships, the alliances, the enemies, uh, what happens to Malady. Uh, uh, overall, I'd say uh, maybe on a scale from one to ten, maybe like a seven. So I really, I mean, I still really enjoyed it. I like having something different kind of every episode. So a lot of TV shows, and especially the past Whedon shows, it's kind of like a formula each episode. There's a big bad or something that happens, and everything's resolved at the end of the episode, and then you move on. And you have the character arcs and the story arcs that go throughout the seasons. And a lot of TV is the same, you know, but every episode has this formula from start to finish. But so far, we haven't had that. Every episode's been kind of different. And it's like this one was very just his all of these interrogations and, you know, we're finding out some stuff, but yeah, there's nothing that happens every episode, you know, cause this could have very easily been a, every episode they go and find someone who's touched and they bring them back to the orphanage and something happens in, among that. And you know what I mean? It could have been a very kind of boring, repetitive show. And so far in at least these four episodes, it's kind of kept you on your toes a bit and been unpredictable. Like I said, that's how they have a goal now. They they have a goal or something they're trying to go. They, they have to find the glowing orb thing. Yeah, I think the next two episodes, because they're going to take a break after, the next two episodes, I think, are going to be full-on action, kind of trying to get to the point, and we'll have some kind of knowledge about what's going on as a whole. You know, we've just left off where you're thinking Amalia's going to now tell at least the, the adults in the closed group what's kind of her deal and then they're going to launch from being this orphanage that just takes in touch to having to kind of form in essence some kind of super group that's going to have to try and investigate and fight possibly a war um touching on that i loved i just got to throw it in there i loved amalia's dress in this episode 
it had like a two-piece top where it was almost like a bird shape showing through. Uh, I don't know if that's like symbolic of anything, but for me, it looked like a really badass Victorian super suit. She was like going around trying to find out all this information, ended up in a fight with Lucy. And it was just, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. She looked, uh, the dress was amazing. I thought the costume was um, was really great. So yeah, just, just leaning into that. <laughs> Are they going to form this super troop that's going to go out and actually have to start kind of working together? Because we haven't seen that yet. Okay, we've seen like a couple of them at a time going out and, and doing things. But, you know, if they're going to end up in a war, then they're going to have to really band together and actually, I guess, fight for their whatever it is, this big blue thing and alien planet. We don't know. We don't know yet, but it'll be interesting to see. I'm excited. But yeah, I can understand how people might not be as enthused by this episode because it was, yeah, it was very different to the, the first couple. That should be the title of this podcast. We don't know. We don't know. What's don't going know. on? We got some ideas, but we're not sure. <laughs> so that'll do for this episode of the podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed the Nevered podcast, uh, we would, of course, like it if you left us a positive review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever else you stream your podcasts. For more Nevers-related content, uh, you can find us on the web at hbothenevers.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hbothenevers, and at the Nevers Podcast, and also at the Nevers Podcast without an A. Comments or questions can be sent to theneverspodcast at gmail.com. Please also rate and review our podcast and help us reach more listeners. So, um, yeah, that's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Chirag, for joining me today, sharing your thoughts on the, the uh, fourth episode. So, uh, where can we find you online, Chirag? Um, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me in a politician's dungeon. <laughs> I'll, I'll be everywhere. Where can Where can people find you, Laura? You can find me uh, at Instagram, um, Laura JP one seven two one. Uh, And until next week, this has been the Nevers Podcast. Bye. Well, you can find me just on my Instagram at Laura172. No, wait, I did that wrong. I don't use it that often, do you know what I mean? This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, produced, and edited by Matthew Yamanashi at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Jilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on the Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers Podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders.